Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the History of England. Episode 59, Magna Carta and the Death of a Tyrant. Every week I'm suggesting an audiobook to listen to, courtesy of Audible. I can recommend Audible with all my heart. It's wonderful having something read to you. It takes the mind off pain like cycling or boredom like ironing. There's the price. Audible is so much more affordable than audio CDs. There's the massive range, over 60,000 titles, so there's something for everyone. And you can get a free audiobook when you sign up for a free trial with absolutely no commitment. All I ask is that you follow the link from my website, www.thehistoryofengland.com, so they know that you heard about it from me. This week's Audible title is Voices of the Powerless, the complete series. It's by Melvin Bragg again, sorry about that, and it's a collection of the BBC Radio 4 series that explores the lives of the ordinary men and women of Britain at critical moments across the last thousand years. It runs from the harrying of the North under William the Conqueror right through to the Civil War. So today everyone, my longest podcast to date. Sorry about that, it's a bit long. But today we're going to finish off John and the Angevins and we're going to talk about Magna Carta, 1214, probably the second most recognisable date in English history. Did I just say 1214? 1215, obviously. 1214, on the other hand, is a completely forgettable date. Anyway, when John came back to England in October 1214, he came back to a country that was close to open revolt. Just maybe, if he'd come back from a victorious war, things might have been different. While it's not specifically the failure at Bouvines that causes the baronial revolt, it could well be that it had been his last chance to avoid it. The barons were fed up with the continuous uncertainty and fear that John's personal rule had produced, and meanwhile his justicia, Peter de Roche, 
have been whipping things up even further by trying to collect the scootage tax. His attempts had met widespread resistance in the north and east of England. Basically, they'd just had enough. And by this stage, the barons are clearly working together. The centre of baronial resistance seems to have come initially from the north, and the phrase the northerners even made its way into the royal records. And certainly Eustace de Vesey, the Lord of Annick in Northumbria, is at the forefront of the revolt, with his history of antagonism to John. But if the heart of the rebellion was in the north, it had spread very quickly. So you may remember Robert Fitzwalter, who along with Eustace had had to flee the country, until the Pope had demanded their return as part of his deal with John. Now Fitzwalter was Lord of Dunmo in Essex, and the Lord of Barnard Castle in London, and one of the most powerful lords in the country and he brought with him a network of powerful family members such as Geoffrey de Mandeville, the Earl of Essex, Henry Bowen, the Earl of Hereford, and Robert de Vere, the Earl of Oxford. They were joined by the largest barons in England with the likes of the Clares and the Biggards. The picture of Magna Carta has been painted in many different ways. On the one hand, it's been painted as heroic barons laying down the foundations of liberty and democracy against an evil tyrant. And on the other extreme as a group of evil, grasping barons, purely out for their own self-interest. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle, of course, as usual. Some of the leading barons had very specific personal grievances. De Stuteville had a debt of 10,000 marks hanging over him. William de Mowbray was furious about the 2,000 marks he'd paid to John for a favourable court judgment, only to then see it go against him. We don't know enough about the motivation of de Vesey and Fitzwalter, but I probably don't need to say that neither the royalists nor the rebels can claim to be either perfect angels or perfect demons. So Fitzwalter comes down to us, for example, every bit as arrogant and high-handed as John does. He was, incidentally, one of the men who had surrendered Vaudreuil to Philip so easily during the loss of Normandy. And there's also an anecdote that Fitzwalter's son-in-law had murdered a servant, John had threatened to hang him, and Fitzwalter had gone off at the deep end. He'd turned to John, and he'd stormed. You will not hang my son-in-law. By God's body, you will not. You will see two hundred laced hounds in your land before you hang him. And then he turned up at the trial with five hundred armed men. So, by all accounts, it looks as though Fitzwalter, at least, was less interested in peace, love, truth, and the rule of law, and more about telling the king to let him brutalise his own lands without interference from him. One of the leading personalities whose motivation was probably the cleanest was not a baron, but a churchman, Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Although he stuck by the king throughout the crisis, his sympathies clearly lay with getting the two sides to agree on the basis of a fairer approach to government. As soon as the dispute with the papacy had been resolved, Langton had been with the king to get him to swear to uphold his coronation oath. At the end of 1214, it is quite probably Langton who went to the barons and reminded them about the coronation charter of Henry I. Because one of the problems was that the barons had tended to appeal to the laws of good King Edward, meaning Edward the Confessor. Now this was a bit of a problem, because nobody actually knew what those laws were. And anyway, it was by no means certain that the laws of Edward actually helped their case. But the coronation oath of Henry I was a very different matter. For one thing, it was really well known. And secondly, when Henry had signed up to them, he'd been in a really difficult position and had needed to win support from the barons. 
so it was therefore much more advantageous towards the Baron's case. Henry had made promises about exactly the kind of things that the Barons were worried about. For example, he'd promised that heirs would only be charged a reasonable relief to take over their lands. The Barons were furious at the amount John had been charging them and the completely arbitrary way he decided on how much they should pay. The trouble was that the Charter wasn't very specific, so it talked about general principles, but it didn't actually name any figures. The Charter doesn't get referred to again after this conversation between Langton and the Barons, but it very probably did have a significant influence on the contents. The rebels came out into the open in January 1215. Their tactics in 1212 had been to depose the king, and now their approach was to offer and agree a charter instead. The tactic seemed more sensible for a couple of reasons. Firstly, there were a lot of floating barons, who as yet were in neither camp, and these barons needed to be wooed by displays of reasonableness. And secondly, John himself had taught the barons that everything, even loyalty, was a matter of negotiation and had its price, so all they had to do was find the price. Their timing was good because John was now in a very poor position. He'd just been given a beating, and he'd spent all his money in the process of getting said beating. There's little doubt, I think, that John had no desire to negotiate in good faith. He was, after all, a man with no good faith to negotiate with. His objective, I think, was to delay, confuse, and do whatever he needed to do to get into a position when he could give the rebels a good kicking. He had no intention whatsoever of finding a mutually agreeable solution. So he put the Batmobile into Angevin wriggling mode straight away. He had a number of important men on his side, William the Marshal and Ranulph of Chester in particular. And in addition, these men were marcher lords, and that meant they had ready-made armies with experience of fighting. So if he could just ride out this initial storm and use the time to get these men and his mercenaries together, maybe he could just get through this. So time waster number one was to promise an answer at Easter. And then on the 4th of March, he took vows as a crusader, which gave him the crusader's respite of three years for any secular obligations. At the same time, he sent letters off to his new BF, the Pope. By Easter, predictably, there was no news from the king. So the barons assembled at the town of Stamford in South Lincolnshire and then moved south towards London. John sent Langton and Marshall to negotiate, but when they returned with a schedule of demands, probably based on the unknown charter we talked about last time, John rejected them in a rage. And letters from the Pope arrived, telling the barons to be nice to abandon any thought of force and giving Langton a ticking off for helping them. And John kept sending proposals for the barons to consider. I have no direct evidence, but I'd like to bet that the barons were fully aware that John defined the word slippery. So, instead of taking any notice of this stuff, the rebels elected Robert Fitzwalter as their leader, calling him the Marshal of the Army of God. And in May, they occupied all of London except the Tower. As he did when he panicked, John had now gone into dithering mode. On one day, he ordered the sheriffs to confiscate the lands of the rebels, and then within two weeks, he asked Langton to arrange a truce. It reminds me a bit of Hitler in his bunker in 1945, sending imaginary armies into imaginary action. This time round, John had simply been overwhelmed. It's also quite possible that he'd been heavily influenced by Langton and Marshall, both at his side and both keen to see a negotiated settlement. And so we come to Runnymede. Now, I don't want to sound too much like a loser, but Runnymede's a really special place for me. It's not far from London, 
and now it's in the heart of crowded, busy commuter belt. But it's a calm, green oasis in all the chaos, and when I was young, my mother and I arrived there almost by accident. There's a memorial to JFK for some reason, and if I'm not much mistaken, there's a patch of land which is sovereign US territory. Anyway, I doubt it had happy memories for John. Between the 10th and the 23rd of June, he met there with the barons and it's probable that some of the initial articles were agreed straight away to be worked up into the Great Charter that followed. This first document, then, is called the Articles of the Barons. On the 19th of June, the barons renewed their homage to John after both sides had agreed to stick to the terms of the Charter and by the 24th, copies of the Charter had been issued. Magna Carta had arrived at last. It's called Magna Carta, by the way, not because it was great in quality, but because in 1217 a second charter was issued to deal with the clauses that dealt specifically with the forest, and this was a smaller charter called the Forest Charter. Now, you'll be delighted to hear that there is an annotated Magna Carta, and indeed Forest Charter on the website, along with the Coronation Oath of Henry I. There's also a link to LibriVox, which is a reading by Jim Mowat of the Charter. Magna Carta is basically a peace treaty. The barons weren't trying to create a new constitution. It was just that there were some things the king was doing that they needed to stop. It was a charter of liberties, not a charter of liberty, if you see what I mean, i.e. it was a charter that enumerated the rights of the aristocracy and free men. It was an unequal treaty at that. The king was forced to give up a lot more than the barons were. But then, he had no intention of sticking by it anyway. As a peace treaty, it has to be said, it's therefore spectacularly unsuccessful, since it's immediately followed by war. There are 60 chapters, which basically cover all the areas of feudal practice that the Angevins have been exploiting for the last 60 years. Despite that, and despite the fact that John cancels it within weeks, it manages to be massively significant. But it's got to be said, when you read it, there are no grand-sounding clauses making grand declarations. It's all very, very businesslike. Nonetheless, three of the chapters are still on the English statute books and, hated or loathe it, Magna Carta has been one of those touchstones of liberty that have been referred to down the ages. OK, so we like historiography in this programme, don't we? So, let's have a look at how people through the ages have viewed Magna Carta. Magna Carta is constantly referred to during the 13th century, but by the end of that century it had become a bit less relevant because Parliament had started and it was beginning to put separate laws in place which defined many of its clauses a bit better. So, for example, the famous Clause 39, which talks about lawful judgment of equals, but actually, incidentally, doesn't mention trial by jury at all, becomes replaced officially by the right to trial by jury. Through the 15th and 16th centuries, we don't hear much about Magna Carta, And actually, the interpretation of the Barons' Revolt becomes much more negative and disapproving. Then, in the reign of Elizabeth, the misinterpretation of Magna Carta begins. Francis Bacon and others start to talk about Magna Carta as a statement of liberty and fundamental law, rather than what it is, which is a set of rights for a particular class, whatever relevance it might have to later constitutional development. And then we get Edmund Cook, the 17th century jurist, He saw the Charter as a statement of liberty against the power of the king. He claimed that it gave liberty to all men, not just a particular class, i.e. all free men. 
and he used it to underpin the Petition of Rights in 1628 in the struggle against King Charles. He wanted to argue against the King's claim to absolute supremacy, and so he used Magna Carta, saying famously that the law was above the King, saying Magna Carta is such a fellow that he will have no sovereign. As ever, there's then a reaction to this high watermark. Hobbes and Locke believed in a natural law, and this meant that they thought Magna Carta a bit irrelevant, because Magna Carta stands for the evolution of law based on custom and practice and precedent, and what they were eager to prove was that there are a set of rights much more fundamental than that. Nonetheless, Magna Carta is clearly hugely significant as a rallying call during the Civil War, however distorted the view of what it actually says was. One of my favourite characters, Freeborn John, or John Lilborn of the Levellers, claimed that the liberty of the whole English nation was in Magna Carta. Plus, Magna Carta then begins to be exported. Several royal charters establishing English colonies in America alluded to the Magna Carta, so such as Massachusetts in 1629, Maryland 1632, Maine 1639, Connecticut 1662, Rhode Island 1663. The Massachusetts Body of Liberty, which is 1641, the Virginia Bill of Rights, 1776, the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments of the US Constitution all quoted its language. By the 19th century, the interpretation by Whig historians of Magna Carta as a fundamental step in the inevitable march of the English towards constitutional monarchy reached its apogee in a chap called William Stubbs and his Constitutional History of England. And since then, the focus has been much more on what the Charter actually says and what its real significance is. Historians like Jenks, Maitland and Pollard in the 20th century are probably a lot more accurate, although possibly less fun. But of course there is our shared public history, the memorable history that is embodied by Seller and Yeatman's 1066 and all that. And in this shared folk history, I suspect that Magna Carta reigns supreme. So to quote from them, Magna Carta was therefore the chief cause of democracy in England, and thus a good thing for everyone, except the common people. The real Magna Carta starts with a statement that the church will be free. It's really not very specific, and it's standard stuff. A big part of what then follows is trying to put some detail into feudal Jews. So, chapter 2 finally nails down that a baron should pay a maximum of £100 for their relief upon inheritance, which is going to mean a significant reduction in royal income in the next reign. Then there's a load of stuff about wardship, trying to make the king behave himself while he has control of the land of a minor, and that he'll arrange a satisfactory marriage. Clause 8 says, No widow shall be compelled to marry, so long as she wishes to remain without a husband. So basically, it tries to stop the kind of abuse we heard about last time, i.e. selling a woman off to the highest bidder. Then there's some stuff about debt, which doesn't really deal with the main problem at hand, the fact that the king was encouraging barons into debt, partly because it's difficult to legislate for the fact that a fool and his money are easily parted. Then in Clause 12, we begin to get to the business end of the whole thing. Here we go. No scootage or aid may be levied in our kingdom without its general consent. Aids from the City of London are to be treated similarly. And then in Clause 13, a process is established around that. Here we go. To obtain the general consent of the realm for the assessment of an aid or a scootage, 
we will cause the archbishops, bishops, abbots, earls and greater barons to be summoned individually by letter. So here's the clearly stated principle then that general taxes need to be agreed with the barons. Now it's important not to get carried away. This isn't a principle of no taxation without representation. It's much, much more restricted than that. But this is the clause that will lead to Parliament before too many years are out. And then there's this interesting line in Clause 15. In future, we will allow no one to levy an aid from his free men. One of the radical things about Magna Carta is that it is issued to and includes all free men. Again, we're not talking democracy here. 85% of the English are excluded, ignored, reviled and generally despised. But the inclusion of all free men, not just the barons and bishops, is pretty extraordinary. It means that the barons themselves are bound by the same rules as the king. They'll also have to moderate their behaviour. It reflects that however self-interested this charter is, it still contains more general and higher principles. It's not just an attempt by the barons to get their rights back, though it certainly is that. Clause 60 is particularly significant. Listen to this. All these customs and liberties that we have granted shall be observed in our kingdom insofar as concerns our own relations with our subjects. Let all men of our kingdom, whether clergy or laymen, observe them similarly in their relations with their own men. Now, you can compare Magna Carta with a lot of other similar concessions by the crowned heads of Europe, and there are echoes of this same inclusion of lesser men. The Golden Bull in Hungary, for example, in 1222 was conceded to, quote, nobles and other men of the realm. But they are usually much more specifically designed for the aristocratic class to the exclusion of the rest of society. In 1316, in France, for example, charters wrung out of poor old Philip V clearly excluded other classes, so much so that they led to anti-aristocratic popular songs. They were often much more provincial and specific. Basically, one of the outstanding things about Magna Carta is that it assumed legal parity amongst all free men to a degree that was absolutely exceptional in medieval Europe. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Charter then goes on to talk about justice and a number of injustices that the barons wanted to rectify. A general point about many of these is that they were too vague to really provide an end to the debate and argument. In many ways, Magna Carta is a failure. Saying things like men should only be fined in proportion to their offence is fine and good, but is open to any amount of interpretation. But a general point is that the barons wanted more royal justice, not less. They recognised that their manorial courts didn't have the competence to deal with any but the simplest cases. But... While they may have wanted more royal justice, they also wanted that justice to be better, less arbitrary and fairer. Here are two examples of how that comes across. Firstly, probably the most famous clause of all, Clause 39. No free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled or deprived of his standing in any other way, nor will we proceed with force against him or send others to do so, except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. 
it's going too far to say that this clause introduces the right of trial by jury. Its great achievement is to assert the principle that judgment should precede execution, the principle of the rule of law. It's far too imprecise to end the debate. What, for example, exactly was the law of the land? What does judgment by equals really mean? But it created a basis for future argument through which these issues would be defined over time. Then, Clause 40 stated, To no one will we sell, to no one deny or delay right or justice. The clause demonstrates the baroness' desire for royal justice, but just for it to work a bit better. In practical terms, the trouble is that money was an integral part of the system which barons played every bit as much as the king did. Arguments will continue for a good while yet, as kings continue to see justice as a bit of a money spinner. But again, at least a principle has been asserted. A few other random clauses caught my eye before we move on. Clearly, we can't discuss every clause here, but remember, I've put an annotated Magna Carta on the website, so you can spend hours of fun going through it. Enjoy. It took me absolutely ages to produce, so if you don't look at it, I will be grumpy, upset and possibly slightly hurt. Clauses 50 and 51 highlight an issue that will come back again to haunt John's son Henry. It highlights John's alien mercenary captains and men. Partly, it's just telling John to get rid of his mercenary army, but it also signals a new distrust of aliens. Not little green men, but just men born outside England. In these clauses, a specific group of French mercenary supporters of the king are mentioned, and the king agrees that they will have no land in England. And then Clause 54. No one shall be arrested or imprisoned on the appeal of a woman for the death of any person except her husband, just in case anyone thought the barons were social revolutionaries. And then that brings us to Clause 61, part of which reads... The barons shall elect twenty-five of their number to keep and cause to be observed with all their might the peace and liberties granted and confirmed to them by this charter. The twenty-five were not intended to be the precursor of Parliament. They were simply designed as a court of appeal against the king so that anyone could raise areas where the charter had been broken and get redress. It was a neat idea. Basically, it meant that the barons could take action against the king while at the same time remaining his men and loyal subjects. It may not be a design for Parliament, but it is revolutionary and full of novel ideas about the nature of kingship. It imposed an oath on everyone that's superior to the oath of allegiance to the king. Now this is wild. So, what we're saying is that the king is effectively a kind of chief executive officer of the law under the supervisions of a baronial committee. William the Conqueror would have burst in his coffin. Again, and in part of this treaty also, by the way, we once again get the reference to the whole community of the realm, cum communia totius terrae. The idea is that there is a wider community that is important, not just the property of the king. So, there we are. Magna Carta. There's much more that could be said about it, but the website's your thing. A few final thoughts for emphasis. Magna Carta is supposed to be a peace treaty, not a constitutional document, and as a peace treaty, it is a miserable failure. The Charter has at many points had exaggerated claims made about it, as a Charter of Liberty, which it is not. It's a Charter of Liberties, a statement of people's specific privileges. 
So you might then argue that it's really not worth the veneration that it's attracted. But it is quite exceptional. Without doubt, it's part of the long struggle of principle against authority. It has some exceptional characteristics, such as recognising the community of the realm, rather than being restricted to the aristocracy. And there's no doubt that it has an impact. Its influence will be immediately felt in the reign of John's son, Henry. Never before have we seen the king being tied down to a set of rules. Never before has it been suggested that the king is subject to a specific set of rules and a baronial committee. In the immediate aftermath, we might have seen to the casual external observer that now all was fine. A series of writs and instructions were sent out by King John to his sheriffs in line with the charter. But once again, John wasn't being straight because at the same time he'd sent off a letter to his new BF, the Pope, telling him what a terrible thing had happened and how the other guys in the playground had been bullying him. It's clear that the barons didn't trust him as far as they could throw him, and they weren't going to get back into their box either. At a council meeting in Oxford, they refused to stand when John came in, which is actually a little childish, isn't it? They kept organising tournaments close to London, and by August 1215 it was already clear that war was back on the cards. John sent his recruiting agents out for mercenaries. The barons were fortifying their castles, but both had to wait. John for his mercenaries, the barons for their harvest. Poor old Stephen Langton knew it, and he hurried around trying to get the moderates to talk. But he was cut off at the knees with the arrival of a papal letter from Innocent. Innocent hadn't yet heard of Magna Carta, actually, because of the travel time, but was not happy that people were being unkind to his vassal. Here's some of what he wrote in something of a roasting for the barons and their supporters. We are driven to express amazement and irritation that when the King of England has made amends to God, the Church have shown him neither help nor favour against the disturbers of the realm. They thus appear to be accomplices in a wicked conspiracy. See how the bishops defend the patrimony of the Roman Church. See how they protect crusaders, lest their insolence should have the effect of in endangering the realm of England and ruining other realms. We excommunicate all such disturbers of the king and we lay their lands under interdict. Now, it would be an anachronism to suggest that the church in these days should be expected to be a defender of the rights of the common man, maybe. But it's difficult to avoid the thought that Innocent was uninterested in the rights and wrongs of the case and simply keen to keep the church's grubby mitts on its new vassal state. He was considerably more interested in his naive desire that John should go on crusade, as he'd promised, as if that was ever going to happen. Sorry, Kim, I know you like the bloke, but really. Certainly, poor old Stephen Langton was gutted. He refused to issue the sentences of excommunication and interdict, but the Pope's commissioners would have none of it, and they went straight ahead and for good measure suspended Langton from office. Langton set off from Rome to remonstrate with the boss. On his journey, another letter arrived from the Pope, now that he'd actually heard of Magna Carta. It was pretty clear. Here's one little snippet. We utterly reject and condemn this settlement, and under the threat of excommunication we order that the King should not dare to observe it. The Charter we declare to be null and void. By the time it arrived, the Civil War was on. By September then, John was in Kent, waiting for his mercenaries to come from abroad. The rebels controlled London and in general could count on the support of the majority of barons in the east and north of England. They were supported by the Scottish king Alexander and the Welsh prince Llewellyn. 
To set against that, John held most of the West and the Welsh marches. Six of the greatest barons in the land, William the Marshal, the Earl of Pembroke, Ranulf, Earl of Chester, William Ferrers, the Earl of Derby, the Earl of Surrey, the Earl of Arundel, and William Longsword, the Earl of Salisbury, his half-brother, were all on his side. Basically, these are the big guys. The problem for the rebels was that despite having widespread support, they didn't have the finances to create a mercenary army. The king held more than 150 castles against them, and they had no siege engine. Ranulf and the marshal's support for the king also meant that the Welsh were successfully shut up in Wales. The problem for John was that he continually failed to take the initiative and strike the knockout blow. The same tendency to dither and panic that had led to his loss of Normandy is much in evidence. Neither side in the civil war covered themselves in glory. The rebels started brightly enough, sallying out of London to the royal castle of Rochester, which was the second most powerful castle in the southeast after Dover. Rochester gladly opened its gates. John was duly livid and came north from Dover with his swelling army of mercenaries. It took him seven weeks to reduce Rochester with the help of 40 pigs, which were burnt in a mine that caused the collapse of the corner tower of the keep. The rebels missed any chance they might have had of a decisive victory, keeping their army within the walls of London. And by the end of the siege, the king had his army, and the chance had gone. The rebels knew they needed help, so a delegation was sent to Philip of France, asking him to send help and offering the crown of England to Louis, his son. It is slightly ironic that the defence of the liberties of the English should be done with the aid of the French monarchy, but of course the aristocracy would still consider themselves as French, albeit with an English flavour and loyalties. And we've got a bit further to go before we start the old English versus the French thing. Something to look forward to. Philip and his son Louis dithered. But in the end, the hatred of the Angevins and greed overcame the fear of the Pope's displeasure, and the first group of ships were sent over. They sat uselessly in the Thames estuary with the French knights, God forbid, forced to make do with beer because the wine had run out. Poor lambs. Meanwhile, John followed his normal path, i.e. the easy one, rather than the one that would have led to victory. Instead of using his military superiority to take London and crush the rebels, he went on a harrowing expedition up the eastern north of England, much more fun. The expedition was successful enough. In three months, he basically knocked out most visible resistance everywhere outside London, and in the process caused the customary pain and suffering. Here's a little taster from one of the chroniclers. The whole land was covered with these limbs of the devil like locusts, who assembled to blot out everything from the face of the earth. For, running around with drawn swords and knives, they ransacked towns, houses, cemeteries and churches, robbing everyone, sparing neither women nor children. But the point is that London was where the rebel army was. And meanwhile, it gave Louis and Philip the chance to put together a proper army and fleet. So, in May 1216, John had amassed his fleet off the southeast coast ready to destroy any French fleet that might appear. But poor old John was unlucky, wasn't he, as well as being a tyrant. And so, on the 18th of May, there was a hideous gale and the English fleet was dispersed. And on the 21st of May, the French fleet, with 1,200 knights and supporting arms, sailed into Pegwell Bay, unopposed. John's army was waiting for it, but rather than attacking, he retreated back to Winchester. Why? It could have been on the advice of William the Marshal, who was cautious, but for whatever reason, John once again failed at the key moment. 
Louis entered London in triumph on the 2nd of June. This seemed to change everything. Louis brought a siege train. His naval captain, Eustace the Monk, now dominated the narrow seas of the Channel, and for a moment it looked as though John's cause would collapse completely. Louis attacked and took Winchester, and John fell back further south and west on Corfe. A flood of barons went over to Louis, and it included big names. The Earl of Surrey, the Earl of Arundel, Count of O'Mile, and get this, the Earl of Salisbury. William Longsword, the king's most effective commander to date, and of course his half-brother. Alexander of Scotland came over the border with an army and would get as far as south as Cambridge. But again, it looked worse than it was. John still had his mercenaries and the earls Marshall and Chester. Louis spent his summer trying to take the mighty Dover Castle, held for John by the justicia Hubert de Burr, and despite his best efforts it just would not fall. Eustace de Vesey, one of the leaders of the revolt, was killed trying to take Barnard Castle in Yorkshire. The Earl of Essex, Geoffrey de Mandeville, was killed in a joust with a Frenchman. Royal castles all over the country were besieged, but holding firm. And by mid-September, the initiative was back with John, as Louis's army shrank. William Longsword came back to his half-brother. John took his army eastward down the Thames Valley and then headed for the eastern counties, cutting the rebels in half. Eventually, in October 1216, he rocked up at Lynn on the North Norfolk coast, probably there to organise the sending of supplies to the north. While he was there, he contracted dysentery. Though by now clearly struggling, he wanted to get to Lincoln, where Dame Nicola de la Haye was holding the castle against the rebels, so he crossed the fens in eastern England, close to the Wash. On the way, he suffered another nasty mishap. According to Matthew Barris, the king lost all of his baggage train and treasure in quicksand while trying to cross a river called the Wellstream. In fact, it's likely that the event wasn't quite the disaster that Paris would have us believe, which I know is not very fun of me to say, but Paris's given to exaggeration was writing a generation afterwards. It's clear he did lose precious relics and part of his baggage train, since in his haste he tried to cross before the tide had properly gone out, and therefore when the quicksand might have been more visible. By the time John reached Sleaford in Lincolnshire on the 15th of October, his condition was serious. He struggled on to Newark, but couldn't go any further. And in the night of the 18th to the 19th of October 1216, after dictating his will, just before his 49th birthday, John died. Parts of his household robbed his treasures and ran off with the spoils, but his body was taken south and west by his mercenaries and buried in Worcester Cathedral, where you can still see his effigy. He left a widow and two sons, Henry and Richard. And so we finally come to the end of John and of the Angevins. It's taken somewhat longer than I thought, but they were worth it, I think. I don't know about you, but I felt a good deal more understanding of John than I had before, when I guess I had the traditional view that John was completely incompetent and as mad as a box of cheese to boot. He still comes across to me as a dangerously unpleasant bloke, a hideous bully and tyrant, and, despite some odd flashes, a military failure when it counted. But he doesn't come across quite as the lunatic that Roger of Wendover would have us believe. But that's it then. End of the Angevins, and next week we start on the reigns of the Plantagenets. Henry III is fascinating for the complete lack of interest shown in him for the most part, but we will come up against people like Simon de Montford, and I'm really looking forward to that. Either way, thanks so much for the comments on iTunes and to all of you who have got in touch in whatever way. It makes a big difference to me. Good luck all and have a great week.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.